there was a moment that really helped me turn that spotlight effect off entirely. There was a gentleman sitting down having his coffee and breakfast and I saw next to him was a takeaway coffee cup, which I could, I was pretty sure there was still some in it. I could see a little bit of it. I thought, oh, great, I can have a coffee this morning. And so I sat down next to him and I wasn't sure if it was his coffee or not. And so I thought, well, I will ask, is this your coffee? And he said, no, it's not. And so I just picked it up and started drinking it. And I noticed I was very carefully watching him at the corner of my eye and he just continued to play on his phone, texting. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terence Toe, Founder and Managing Director of Strategic Corporation. I'll be one of your hosts today and joined by Nadia. Yes, I'm Nadia Hughes from Smart Business Solutions and I'm delighted to be here. And Nadia will be uh, co-hosting with me. So thank you. Great to have you here this morning, Nadia. We're welcoming today Diane McGrath. Diane's a professional speaker. She's a consultant, coach, PhD researcher, writer, biohacker and what we'd love to talk about today is she's also a Mars One astronaut candidate. Welcome, Diane. Hey, thanks, Terence. Great to chat with you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yes, I still can't believe that you actually agreed to come to our podcast. So Terence will be from time to time pinching me to just so it's real. <laughs> That's how I feel about it sometimes. Really? Does it? sound a bit surreal to you that you one day you're with us on earth and another day you will be in a completely different place um, somewhere so far away that I can't even go and visit. It's actually, it's a really good point. I think the, that whole thing about the extraordinary, and this is what it is, it, you know, to think about humanity living on another planet. It's the sort of thing that I always thought that we would do when I was a child, I always expected that we would be in space, that human beings would be living in space. So that part of things is not surreal. I think it's a bit odd. It's hard to put your finger on something which isn't tangible and it's so far in the future. So it's difficult to try and perceive yourself in that and know they want to achieve something extraordinary in their business or whatever, but don't know quite what that looks like yet. So that's an interesting point. In order to achieve something, you, people believe that you have to visualize it, you have to have a plan and everything. And for you, in order to achieve this dream, what did you have to do? First, I had to accept it. Not something I thought about doing just on a whim. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go to Mars tomorrow. <laughs> it was something that I spent a few months thinking about. You spend quite a bit of time looking into all of the challenges of that. You dream about how exciting that is and you want to work for yourself or succeed in working for someone else, whatever it is. But you understand what would I face? What are the barriers to success with this? What about me? What would I, what would I be trading off to do something so extraordinary? So I think that that, that element of things was my decision-making towards this and that first step of recognising, yeah, I do want to do this regardless of all of these challenges and accepting a lot of the trade-offs. What are the major trade-offs? Because this is a common thing for all of us who tries to achieve something. The price for success, the price for obtaining something is always a sacrifice. And what is it? Success coaches, performance coaches, business coaches, they all talk about this concept. What is it, Nadia, for example, if they would be coaching me, you prepared to give up in order to get it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, I think, a very common um, part of life, isn't it? I mean, you don't end up with a successful outcome without something else altering. It's, energy is, is never lost. It's just transformed. So you might have your energy going into multiple baskets at the moment, but if you want to succeed in something, you need to focus that energy more towards the, that particular part. We can't do everything at, at full pace all the time. That something suffers all the time. Uh, and we see this when I know when I've been focused more on my PhD or there are other things in my life that have had naturally less focus and less energy because you just can't do it all. And regardless of what people say that women, you can do it all today or men, you can't. Yeah. It's one of the things that I, uh, I guess, talk about every now and then, which is 
you know, or some people even look at what they lose versus what they gain. What does that look like for you, Diane? Loss versus gain. It's, yeah. I don't think it's about that half full or half empty thing because some people say, oh, maybe you've always focused on the positive and that. And no, absolutely not. There are times I have no idea how I'm going to deal with that. I have no clue, and which can really get you down sometimes. And you think, how can I do this? I don't know if I can. And, I, and for me, if the gains, are they important enough? Is it worth transferring so much of your energy towards that particular outcome? I think personal reflection as well, not just all of the ledger and you know the dollars and the cents from one side versus the other. That's all important too. Of course, if you can't afford to open the door, it's not just about that. For example, going to business, they're not necessarily just doing it to make money. There's a reason why they're starting up and there's a purpose behind that, like a, a why or a why not. And I think that strong enough then what we consider a loss, I sort of think of more of part of my decision-making. I don't tend to use the term sacrifice in the same way. I tend to because it allows me to achieve something. So it's not something I'm, If I think of something as a sacrifice, I tend to end up getting to a point of almost resentment. There's an emotional connection, but it helps me if I use the terms in my mind, trade-off or part of my decision-making. Or as you say, that even just the term loss, Terence, I think is a good one as well. But yeah, you can sort of lead yourself and work out, is the power of what you wish to gain out of this opportunity, is it strong enough to, to have the balance over, over the loss side? Then I just about to ask you a very trivial question of a normal human being who is not uh, getting ready to go to Mars. And obviously, I have completely different perspective on this all. But what I think a lot of listeners will relate to my absolutely normal human notion. And please forgive me if I'm asking this question, but it's very, very strange one. And it was bothering me for quite a while because I was reading a lot about you. I looked at all your accomplishments. I put a lot of, of your achievements in a sense of your diplomas, your PhD work. You have entire wall of them. When I was looking at it, I w- my first word popped into my mind. Now you don't need any of these achievements because they all earth certified. So I don't think you will have much competition there on Mars to needing all these certificates which you have got or things. So you were obviously designed to stay here with us. It's first thing. And second thing, again, I apologize for this. Diane will go to Mars and then suddenly, what if you on the way there change your mind and say, hang on, it was a mistake. I don't want to do it. What will happen then? Is it okay to ask these type of questions? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm more than happy to respond to them, Nadia. They're, I think they're fantastic questions and the sorts of things that we often ask ourselves at different stages of, you know, is it worth staying here? No matter what that is, is it worth staying in the job I'm doing, in the relationship I'm in, um, in the city I'm living in? You know, is there a reason why I'm still here doing this thing? And they're the sorts of things that we toss around in our, in our lives constantly. This is the part of the human condition, I think. And many people do decide to, to take big changes in their lives as I think that's probably happened to you there you know and that there is that why why would you do it when I'm sure in many instances many of your friends back from where you're from originally would have thought no there's no way I would go to Australia there is something in common with this one I never been back to Russia 20 years I've been here and I never went back to Russia wow that's amazing and Obviously, you know, still sense of wonder about what is possible, but because it's made you part of the, the successful person you are, I think you're prepared and follow where your heart's taking you or where your head takes you at different times. It does lead, of course, to that other part of your question about changing your mind. Do we change our mind? Sometimes there are times in the different journeys we take in, you can't get out of it. It's like, well, I just have to follow this through now. I just have to suck it up and follow it through. And other times you do have the chance to, to tap out, so to speak. And I guess at those moments, then it's about, once again, reassessing, like Terence touched on earlier about, you know, those losses versus gains. Do I, is it worth still progressing with this? Is it still important continuing to trade off on this? For me, as you say, Nadia, once we're on the way to Mars, but there is no turning back. You are on that journey. And that's when come to terms, if you're having a difficult, something which you just have to continue to progress with, then you deal with that. And dealing with that means it's about acceptance for me. It's about 
on those difficult days, no matter what it is in life, if you're just having a bad day because something's gone wrong and it's just upset you in some way, do you let it derail you? Sometimes it does for a short while. That's part of the human condition as well. We're not perfect creatures. And to sit with it for a bit and, and try and work out why it is I'm feeling that way and what can I learn from this, this moment that's given me challenge. I tend to do this as well when I'm, you know, you know when you meet people, they rub you the wrong way, you don't know why, but there's something about somebody you've just met and it just kind of grates on you and you're not sure, oh, why do I feel this way? And so, you know, in the past I would often avoid spending time with those people. But over the last few years I've been sitting with it and working out I wonder why I feel that way and start to explore that because usually that uncovers something about myself, something I'm not happy with about myself. Perhaps they've shown me something that reflects maybe a weakness of my own and it could be around self-worth. It's a big one. You know, am I good enough for this? Like the whole Mars situation, I really believe that I'm the best person to send to another planet. You know, there's going to be critics of this sort of stuff. Do they... Am I going to be good enough? That whole imposter syndrome, that's something that most of us, that probably a lot of you listeners who have started their own journeys in their own business or succeeding in businesses for other people, there have been many times, I'm sure, where they've sat down and gone, oh, one day someone's going to work out. Well, that's a big one, imposter syndrome for the business. You're quite right. And a lot of people just, I had this conversation with business people who just say, I said, what's your biggest fear? And they say, well, somebody one day will find out that I don't know that much. I'm not that much of an expert in this area. And this all will be over. And what's your strategy about it? How would you answer to them how to combat those fears? Yeah. The good old's not good enough. Um, and it's, it stems from self-belief, doesn't it? It's you don't feel you're enough. Uh, and what is it about that moment that makes me feel that way? It's pushing on some sort of button or trigger from maybe when I was a, a child, and which is kind of crazy because I'm not a child anymore. I'm a grown-up. I've shown very capable of achieving extraordinary things as we all and, but we don't sit with that. The human mind has got a strong negativity bias and we automatically, this includes me as well, will look at that negativity or whatever it is, you know, or someone will work out that I don't know what I'm doing. The trick is to, be, to start to be aware of that sort of talk. And for me, part of my strategy towards being much more self-aware, been introducing types of meditation. And whether that's a reflective process or even just journaling, but for me, I do journal and I also do at least 10 minutes of meditation once a day. And that allows me over time and I can catch myself at those moments of self-doubt. And it's not that I don't pull myself out of them all the time. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I notice them. That's from my research. There's a, a theory called reflexivity, where as soon as we start to observe a particular behavior, that behavior starts to change. And that's one of the things that I adapt in my own life as well. And I feel a lot less challenged by that and a lot more worthy of just being the person that I am. And I think that's part of it too. I'm good enough as I am to be Diane McGrath. No one else has to be me. That's actually wonderful. I also got another very sentimental question. Am I allowed to ask sentimental questions or there is some limits there? Yes, please do. My question was, it's a personal. I was thinking last night because I was thinking I'm going to talk to this amazing person and I just want to see, it's, you are like a completely unearthly, it's just, sorry, the pun, this benchmark for me, because you are everything, you're like a bionic woman in my head. And I was just wondering, I perceive myself as very, very normal human being with all these weaknesses. I was wondering what it would be like, suddenly oh, I wanted a little bit of your life, and I was imagined myself, what? would be like your last days on earth what is it here you would like to do for yourself as a human being are you going to travel are you going to visit and enjoy the nature because mass is not going to give you these beautiful rivers that's kind of question i had and i just was wondering because i didn't have this chance before i left russia i left russia in a hurry it was a bit of a problem there happening i was a journalist and so i didn't have this time to lemon to say goodbye or anything i just packed up and gone in a almost secretly left russia which is part of the story but again what it's like for you will be your last few days i have 
a very clear timeline then, which is a, a wonderful gift in life to be able to know you have a deadline of X to do these things. I don't know about you, sometimes when I'm working on elements for my PhD or my business or whatever, the stuff that I do well, I have very clear deadlines on, very, very clear deadlines on, and I can throw myself into that. And when we don't have clear deadlines on parts of our business or whatever it is else in life, the same thing or, or a very defined goal like in your exercise and fitness and health and so forth, you know, I say that as, as context for the fact that I believe that I may potentially have only about 12 or so years left on this planet. Those moments where nothing else matters except this point where I hear your voice and we share a discussion and explore ideas and the rest of the world disappears for this particular moment because this is the only moment I have. This time with my family, it may not be as frequent as sometimes it could be or might be, but every moment we spend together, I make sure that it's the best moment I've had with them. I love food and I think if I did manage to ever have a bucket list of sorts before leaving this planet, I would eat my way around the world. I would <laughs> have all the food that's get to explore it and food connects us and a real warmth and emotional element of food as well and it's how people welcome each other and how they create community. Oh dear, I owe you Russian dinner. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I'd love that. Well, uh, so, yeah, so that's... No pressure, I just have to cook you my borscht. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> ah, cool. When are you back to Melbourne? For about another week. I'm in Adelaide at the moment. So I'm here for an event tonight and then I'm doing a personal lock away for writing some more of my PhD for about a week. Oh, wow. What are you writing? What part of PhD are you writing now? What are you focusing on? My PhD, it's in food waste in the hospitality yep. sector. And I've done all my research associated with it. I'm now, last night I was just finalising a publication to go to an academic journal. And this week ahead, I'm just refining one of the chapters of my thesis. Diane, you're amazing because what I remember is I saw you presenting on one of the Women's Network. And then that's the same day going coming back from Melbourne on a train, I met you sitting right opposite to me. It was a bit of a surreal moment. And I'm just sitting there inside, thinking inside of my heart, obviously thinking, not voicing it, say goodness, because sometimes I do have to filter what I'm saying. I'm thinking, <laughs> how is a woman going to Mars is so like, normally sitting on a train talking to me about food waste and this is what really picked my ears when you were talking about you actually had 53 days challenge if i correctly you so you basically were having some public experiment where you were eating leftovers and you just what possibly possessed you to do that <laughs> i decided to do it at a conference last year and presented some of my research data at a conference and I had finished drafting a publication that I submitted to a journal article and that was on how much food Australians waste when we go out to eat. And I thought, oh, no one's ever going to read this information except for other academics, really. And so I thought, oh, it's a shame. It was really fascinating. And I think, I thought maybe if other people knew about how much was being wasted, maybe some people might change and not waste as much food. So I thought, well, I'll do it in a way that something that maybe people can connect with well, which was a type of storytelling. So I went and developed a bit of a, a social experiment. If I can live for a whole week off the waste of other people's plates, so going out to cafes, restaurants, but not buying anything, only eating what other people leave behind, and, but I'll record that. And over a week, through my exploration and some of my little anecdotes and the funny things I encountered, people might learn a few lessons about why we waste food and so that's why I did it. And I didn't realise it would be something that would end up with quite a bit of publicity. I had a lot of people following me from around the world doing it. And in fact, one woman contacted me who was a competitor and she said, oh, why don't you write this up for, for a newspaper article for The Guardian or something like that? So I did. I didn't think that'd be interesting. I thought, oh, this is a bit strange. No one would want to know this story. But I wrote it up and, and The Guardian would love to publish it. So I ended up being published in The Guardian earlier this year part of my storytelling of this about why people leave food on their plate and what's left and some of the, the statistics behind it without it being really boring. It was not the most pleasant experience because it's not the sort of food I normally eat, but it proved a few points, I think. Well, the other thing I'm going to ask you, how you were dressed and how did you approach unfinished plate? 
Do you just go to the table or you will wait? waiter would take it to the kitchen? What was happening? The logistics of it. Logistics? Yep. I would walk past cafes or restaurants or maybe in food courts and I would be able to assess how far people are wearing to their meal. So if they were finishing or finished. And uh, so then if the plates hadn't been cleared yet by the staff, I would just sit down in some instances and just finish it. In other instances, I would take my containers with me in my bag and I would just put the remains in one of my takeaway containers so I could reheat it at home later. Other times I would ask the staff as they're clearing it out, do you mind if I have that? What was their response? There was a couple of times where I asked diners if I could have it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, Did they give you money as well? No, <laughs> no, I didn't give any money. It was all had to be done for free. You know, they, they pushed back from the table, they pushed their plate away, they put their knife and fork together in some instances. But there is a behaviour which indicates I've, I'm done now, I've, I've had enough of this. And you can see it. There was one food court that I was in and I saw there was a couple sitting together and the gentleman and the woman had finished quite some time earlier and the gentleman finally finished his meal and they sat back and I was chatting. And so in going up to them, my partner actually helped me with this one too because I was busy scavenging in other places too. It was just a case of asking, if you finish with that, can I clear your plate for you and actually finish what's left? What I probably want to know from that is what did you learn from that whole experience? That we waste food. <laughs> we do waste food. I was surprised by the fact that people leave chicken. I'm not surprised by how much, the majority of the food that was left over was vegetable matter, something from plant-based foods, bread, all of this. So the most common things left rice. People don't leave a lot of protein, so animal protein. That's the main part of the meal for most people. So they don't leave that, they eat that. Found that people were leaving chicken and that surprised me. Perhaps it's because chicken is becoming a commodity food. You can buy chicken very cheaply these days. Uh, and there are more chickens in the world than there are people. So perhaps abundance, we don't feel it's as valuable anymore than it was when, when I was a child when chicken was still quite a rare thing. You didn't have chicken very often. So, yeah, that might be one of the things that really surprised me. The other engagement I had with people in social media and the, the points that people found difficult were, were around the social discomfort of doing it, the ick factor, like, yuck, how could you do that? Yeah, how can you? Yeah, most people would be quite happy to share food with their friends. Mm-hmm. So that for the strangers, like, and there was a discussion I had with one woman, I think she was from the States, on social media about it, and she realised that this discussion we are having had uncovered how she feels about strangers. It was nothing to do with really the ick factor, but it was about how she felt about people that she didn't know, which is an interesting point because everybody is... Well, it unravels a lot of issues we have got, but it's believed that people live with shadows of their past and the past happens when we're growing up. It's usually inflicted upon us by our parents. So we carry those shadows around and they manifest its ugly head so often. This lady from America probably fear of strangers, which was imposed by her parents. And that's what we are. We are just a big bag of goodies with all our emotional luggage. So, and it's interesting. It's very interesting to confront our luggage. Terence and I, we had prior conversation and Terence was recently criticized for something. And I said, you have to remember one thing that people will see in you some minus which they suffer from themselves. It's very recognizable for them. Something they don't like about themselves, they will see first in you. And this is quite, yeah. again, it's became very known. Diane, since we're on food track. Mm. And that's, uh, that brings to mind something like the spotlight effect. In research and in behavior research in particular, there's something called the spotlight effect. We believe that more people are looking at it really is the case. That is amplified. That's particularly even more so behavior that might be not socially normal. So, for example, when I started taking food from tables at restaurants and cafes or sit down and finish someone's coffee or whatever it was, I felt that the world was looking at me, that every eye in the room was looking at me, when in fact they weren't. Hardly anyone noticed me at all. That you talk about that whole shadows to mind, it's, it's like, well, am I doing something which is okay? Am I, you know, this just doesn't fit with what I think a good person or a normal person or a good behaviour is. And in this one, I think we can just have a little tip and there is a lot of goodness about it. What differs a normal person 
from a leader, from a high achiever and from a person who can accomplish things. I think exactly this point of recognizing the shadow and responding to it adequately rather than being hostage by them and let them take you away again from something you wanted to accomplish. You had to let go of this public embarrassment. You have to go off this spotlight effect to a degree. It's very confronting. It's more confronting than being confronted by third party. It's confronting yourself. There was a moment that really helped me turn that spotlight effect off entirely. There was a gentleman sitting down having his coffee and breakfast and I saw next to him was a takeaway coffee cup, which I could, I was pretty sure there was still some in it. I could see a little bit of it. I thought, oh, great, I can have a coffee this morning. And so I sat down next to him and I wasn't sure if it was his coffee or not. And so I thought, well, I will ask, is this your coffee? And he said, no, it's not. And so I just picked it up and started drinking it. And I noticed I was very carefully watching him at the corner of my eye and he just continued to play on his phone, texting. <laughs> Most people aren't paying attention to us at all. They're, we're so worried that people are watching us succeed or fail or stumble or whatever that sometimes we're too frightened to take those steps. When most people are too busy focused on paying much attention to ours until we bring it to their attention that they need to be involved in it. So makes me think is it's quite sad actually we are very egocentric we are living in our own bubble with our own demons and we hardly pay attention to the rest of the world you on the other hand going to mars going to mars a selfish mission uh, just to prove diana something or is it you doing for humanity this is what i want to understand i want to make link between this egocentric versus altruistic yeah, and sometimes, you know, I do think about this myself. Am I doing this for me? Why am I doing this? And is this the way I need to achieve that? And for me, going to Mars is not about getting my name in the record books. I really don't care if my name is never known. It doesn't bother me. Well, at, it's too late by now. So. <laughs> it's, they're not going to be able to spell it right anyway. They'll always put one in or two. <laughs> the whole concept of why am I doing this, I don't see it as a selfish one, but it's hard to... There's probably a little bit of ego around that as well. Like I wish to achieve this outcome for humanity, but it's still me doing it. I think the thing that will prove that it's not about me is the way that I help. So, and whether that goal, for me, the goal around going to Mars includes so many things, but part of it is around sustainability. And if I can help, help show that we can live sustainably on another planet, we developed and built systems that are environmentally friendly and renewable and so forth here on this planet first and they're available here on this planet so strive to do something extraordinary elsewhere we'll end up with here um just as a as a consequence and uh, and I, I i love that whole idea and and if if that means that you know part of my journey is about stimulating other people to do that work then that's great then i recognize then that it's not something which is about selfishness it's all more about um, being focused on the achievement for others and diana it's just basically brings me to very important point i think from my perspective is businesses businesses also has to be sustainable we quite often talk about it and business itself when we're creating it it's a system which has certain attributes in order for any business or any project whether it's mass or here a local coffee shop or electrical business. Let me use this simple example or dental practice or medical practice. We all talk about creating a system where humans can benefit from. This is what in a nutshell we all trying to have. So what are attributes of sustainable business or system? Well, it's, it really does depend on, I guess, contributes to that system. So systems thinking takes into account not just the materials when it comes to sustainability. People often think about, you know, waste or electricity and water and things like that. Sustainability is also about can I continue to open the door each day? Is the income that I'm receiving sufficient for me to be able to achieve the goals I need to do to pay my staff, to pay the bears, all of these sorts of things? These are critical parts of being sustainable as a business, then you can't achieve the other goals. Many businesses are on a journey of sustainability even if it is a big, important part of their philosophy of their business is about being more environmentally friendly or whatever happening in one fell swoop. I tend to find that businesses who are focused on trying to be, have a, almost like a ladder of sustainability where they step up a rung each time. And once they've achieved one level, it's like, okay, we've done that. 
how we achieve many things in life, isn't it? I mean, whether it's you know, in sporting endeavours or whatever it is, that we're getting better at crosswords, it's through practice that improving our skills to move to the next level of whatever that is. So thinking about understanding what are the elements of that system for your business, what are the materials that are critical for your business, you know, and what if resupply of those materials, if, you, if it was a manufacturing business, for example, were all of a sudden not there? Or what if, for example, the market changed dramatically through automation is going to happen in the next five to 10 years? We will see so many industries decimated due to automation, you know, through artificial intelligence and more robotics. But I don't think, you know, I use the term decimation, but it's not. It's about transformed. So how can we be a part of that? Like understanding how the system, it's like a living organism. It changes based on a lot of stimulus. That particular environment, and it could be around sometimes regulation as well. You know, we all know well, there's so many regulations that we have to think about when it comes to our different businesses. The food sector, for example, that you mentioned, Nadia, you know, all the health and safety aspects of that. And those are things that businesses have to tick the boxes on to make sure that they can continue to open the door and operate, let alone just make the money to be able to open the door as well. So that help you become sustainable. And sometimes they seem like, oh, it's just another thing I have to do. But if all the ducks are aligned and you manage to tick them off, then, then that's something you can then grow and develop even further. Thank you for that. Basically, what I would like to also say to our listeners is why I did reach you out, because you have an extraordinary opportunity to prove that some sustainable system can be operated in completely isolated environment by ways of implementing certain things. And I don't know exactly the details of what it looks like, but you obviously have to think, you have to have a great plan to have this capsule alive in this total isolation, in this vast universe. But what I do imagine in this is that you have to have a great plan and think about every single possibility, which potentially you can think of in order to start implementing this to guarantee some success. This is what I think it's planning. Is it right? You're absolutely right. What's the saying? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And I as a risk assessment expert as well, risk management, and I know how to do really thorough risk analyses of whether it's a business or whether it's particular, what are the critical risks that could derail anything and then work out, can they be treated? What's the potential impact of them? And how do we keep managing them and keeping an eye on them? So to understand that network around your outcome, your objective is really critical. So when it comes to sustainability, you kind of apply the same sort of process there. What are the important things that we need to survive on Mars? It's energy, it's water, it's food. So what are the things that ensure that they are there? What are the things then that are the critical points of failure there, that if something happened, such as we lost power, what are our backups? How can we make sure that we still survive? So knowing that, you know, sort of really looking at all of the critical parts of the plan and looking at it as a loop, like what feeds into what, like understanding how points connect, their own sustainability and not just for making sure that we can eat and live on Mars, definitely. And if I do ask, it's just a bit of good flavor for this. What, uh, as a risk assessor, tell me what biggest risks with your missions? What are they? From a human perspective, a trivial human being perspective, without using words of risk assessor, what can go wrong? What can go wrong? No launch happening. <laughs> so, I mean, about 94% of all rocket launches these days are successful. So, you know, the odds are in our favour, but there's obviously there's always a chance of things going wrong. There could be technical failure in landing. There could be issues with the human quality as well, like quantity, I should say, as in what happens to us as a species. What about our health, our well-being? What about the mental health in particular, the psychology. So a lot of things can go wrong when it comes to the, the personal side too, the, the stress, the anxiety, the feeling of extreme isolation, like you mentioned. And then, of course, there's the when you get to Mars, how do we breathe? And how do we make sure that we can drink water and grow food and supply ourselves with electricity and energy to be able to support energy we can't do any of them pretty much so that really is one of the critical points of failure or success for, for the mission is ensuring that we can power it and thankfully solar works well on mars that's a the simple solution is something that's been working there for over a decade already use solar power it doesn't mean that we can't utilize other forms of energy and definitely there's the potential to create our own fuels with producing great fuel 
the first point of call, something which is going to have to work for us and work well, is the use of solar power. Diane, I'm just kind of interested a little bit in the preparation. What does your preparation look like? I mean, because my understanding of this trip, it's a one-way trip essentially, right? Yes. So you've got to be, I guess, as prepared as you can be. You know, what does that look like leading up to the event, let's call it? Are you talking about technical preparation or you're talking about Diane as a human being? Because there are so much in preparation happening. There are so many aspects of preparation. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of aspects of it. I mean, the the one thing that we've touched on a little bit already, I don't know whether we've gone really deep into it, is you mentioned purpose. And, you know, the one thing that I just keep thinking to myself, you would have to have a really strong why, a really strong purpose to be able to, you know, be a part of this mission. So I'm really interested in what that actually is. It's great to have a plan, but you set your goals in stone and your plan in sand, as they say in marketing. So you know, if you know what you want to achieve, what is it, your function, what's the purpose of doing this? And for me, I mean, I, I know Mars One's goal, permanent human settlement on Mars. Why? Because they want to show that we can explore and share this universe as a united humanity, uh, which is something which is difficult to do if an organisation that was, say, from a government, a single government operation, because it would always be, to be an astronaut for NASA or any of the different space agencies, you must be a native, or sorry, a resident citizen of the nation. So NASA will only send American citizens. Roscosmos will only send Russian citizens, etc., etc. Whereas Mars One is international and apolitical. And so they're looking to every two years from 2031 onwards that are from four different countries. So that's that whole aspect of united humanity. That's one of the things that drew me to the organisation to see focus on removing the othering that happens in life to show that we can, it doesn't matter whether we're, what our gender, what our age, what our background is, that instead of seeing it as a difference, which is a difficult thing, as diversity which assists assists us in developing richer community a better community solving problems all this sort of stuff so to celebrate that difference in a way that's valuable i saw that as fantastic and then of course men passion for sustainability i thought this is an amazing opportunity to show to not just show but to drive the development of technology and systems to ensure that we can live sustainably on this planet through trying to get to another one and just you know that those two together for me became perfect storm that it was just such a an extraordinarily I'm trying to find the right words, but it's just a powerful reason to wish to be a part of it for me. It makes it a lot easier to drive my own preparations around this. I mean, Mars One haven't finished the selection process yet. There's a small stage still to come, the last stage, and uh, and then we'll go through. In the meantime, I started my own preparations for this after I got shortlisted the first time back in uh, December 2013 because I saw who I was back then in 2013 and then I looked at who I needed to be in 2031 I had to be a totally different person. I didn't know what that was going to look like yet, but I knew to face those challenges, to be mentally prepared, to be able to physically be in a space where there's you know, less gravity with the atmospheric conditions, sort of stuff with higher exposure to radiation, all of these sorts of huge health risks. How can I prepare myself in such a way that I can optimise my capacity for this mission, which means optimise me for the better outcome so that my success in becoming a, a healthier person, a, a more stable person mentally and emotionally and so on, ensures that this mission is more likely to succeed. So it's, it's not about me. It's about doing it for the outcomes of the others. Part of the acceptance of focusing on something which is so long-term is realising that it has an opportunity and outcome for today as well. Like, and finding that and pinning that small goals today, which is very difficult in businesses. I know, Nadia, you were talking about you know, the challenges of businesses at times and I think one of the things that's difficult for businesses these days is to focus long-term. It's really hard. Or they've got bads to pay next, at the end of the quarter, all, the, all of these sorts of things that are, are very methodical, and, but they're not part of your why. You, it's not part of your why. I think it's very important to focus on developing yourself and your business so that you can achieve that greater why. In my everyday life and work, I have a, a team meeting, so to speak, with my partner. We do sit down with, what are we trying to achieve with this? trying to achieve here this is on a personal level what are we trying to achieve personally with our research or with whatever it is what are we trying to achieve with you know becoming part of this extraordinary journey to mars am i operating in a way that's going to help me get there 
if you don't take the time out to assess, am I on track with doing this something, getting myself ready for this, then you're never going to get there. It's just going to be incremental rather than doing something which would take you somewhere extraordinary. So I'd make sure that when I am focused on driving myself towards this unknown future, that I actually keep tabs on it because otherwise it just slips away, that whole thing about planning that we talked about before. It's a lot of my personal health and diet to try and optimise myself today is completely focused on being a better person for tomorrow and Mars ready, but in such a way that gives me, I guess, great outcomes for my own future on this planet as well as today as well. So can you give us a little bit of insight into maybe some of the things you've changed, you know, some of the things that you... I know that Diane changed her bone density. Mm. This is what I read. She also expanding her brain capacity and increasing her IQ by exposing herself to extreme cold. Yeah. So let's talk about that. <laughs> it's interesting. And another thing is there is a special, absolutely special diet Diane is doing, which makes her body function very optimal. And apparently it's a big secret. She's not going to share with you because oh. it involves a lot of science behind I do Actually, it's, I play around with stuff a lot. So I do a lot of self-experimentation. I do a lot of research first to find out you know, what the challenges are. So when I did short the health risks that astronauts face, and I looked at you know, my body at that time, and I was very healthy and you know, quite fit and so forth. But it's like, can I be better? Can I be better? And it's not that I wasn't good. I was good. Which is, you know, often if we think about we're talking about businesses quite a bit here. So sometimes as a business, we get into a role. We think we're, we're rolling okay. We're opening the door. We're making a profit. We can have you know, a long weekend here and there. It's hard to have a holiday when you're in your own business. These sorts of things, we can I be better? Is there something that I can do that makes my world, my job, my business extraordinary? So I had a look at all of those health risks and I started to try and work out why they occur. So I did the research to examine what we knew at that moment, uh, what's happening medically with the body and physiology and, and so forth, and then started to research on the boundaries. So not the boundaries that are set there at the moment, but what's happening at the boundaries. In health research and in most research, a bell curve, like the normal curve to things, like, and, and assume that most things fit under a normal distribution, which is it's a very statistical kind of thing and sounds quite bland and boring. I don't think any of us are average. I think that we all are unique individuals that don't fit under a bell curve. I think we're all outliers in our own different ways, in different capacities. So I can push myself beyond what's considered normal to put myself as an outlier maybe an optimised individual for the future. For example, 82% of astronauts, male astronauts that come back from space end up with vision impairment and 64% of female astronauts do. And when I did the research on you know, why that seems to be happening and what's occurring and did some research on what happens, what, why does the eye function in certain ways and what's driving that. And I, yes, I'm not an ophthalmologist or optician or anything like that. I'm someone who's driven by trying to seek an answer. And so then I started to experiment with ways that I can improve my vision. I had good vision. I had 20-20 vision and I used to wear glasses to read and especially work on the computer uh, later in the day. My vision, for example, I haven't worn glasses now for about three years. So I didn't realise. I was actually quite sceptical to start with as a researcher. It's good to ask questions and be sceptical about things in a way. Is this going to work? Is this not? And how will I measure to make sure it's going to be working or that? particular intervention is what's actually working to change things. So you've got to measure it. For example, the experiment at the moment that I'm calling Three Months, Three Ways, where I'm doing a totally different diet for the next three months, uh, one diet a month, and uh, doing strength training. And I'm wearing, I've got a device that I've attached to myself the next three months. It's a, a wearable device that's got a needle in my arm. It's just got a sensor and I can read my blood glucose at any particular time. And it's used for diabetics who wish to check their blood glucose. I'm trying to see what supports aspects of my health to enable greater strength gains and I guess monitor what happens as well to support really good sleep during that time. It seems to suggest there are different types of diets that are um, more... I suppose, supportive of better sleep. And if we sleep well, everything else in life goes well. Better mental health, weight, you name it, it's healing, everything is most active. But if we don't eat to support that, then we miss out on optimising all of that. So, so I do a lot of research, and so I did, but I do tests first. So I had a whole heap of blood tests done to show, well, this is what today before I start this experiment. And then I'll do exactly the same blood tests at the end of this first month. And then I'll do them again at the end of the next month and then at the end of the next month. And I track every day elements of my sleep, 
of this blood glucose every hour and a whole lot of other stuff as well because if you don't measure it, then I can't work out what it is that's affecting what. So then it allows me to tweak things. And now this seems quite extreme to some people, and but it's leading back again to business. This is a part of trial and error, isn't it? If we, if we work out what we want to try and achieve, so if we take a design thinking approach to things, if we're trying to you know, consider doing something new for our business or we're not sure what to do, design thinking approach has five steps. The first is empathising. The second is defining. The third is ideation. The fourth is prototyping. And the fifth is testing. And it's actually a cycle. And to empathise, that's when we stand. And with it in a business, it's like, well, what's really happening here? What is the problem? Like really helping to understand what the problem is. And it's not just taking it at face value either. It's almost by using the word empathise, it's about connection, like understanding the individual within that, not just the process. So empathise with, with what's happening. Then defining it, that next step of mapping it out, like what's happening and why? Like this is the issue and here's the evidence that's proving it. We now understand what the problem is and this is a fantastic thing for businesses to do. Then it's about the ideas generation. So ideate is to generate heaps of ideas and it's not about criticising at this stage. It's about like how could we, all of the different permutations we can come up with to solve this problem for my business, for my health or whatever it is. List them all down, have brainstorming sessions, do yes and sessions. Don't say buts, don't limit it yet. Just come up with all of the gems and then refine things down and, and prototype stuff. Like let's test some stuff. Let's see what works, what really works in this. And by prototyping, that allows you to be really agile. It's not about putting a whole new system in place and just change and be really expensive and a very expensive failure. But do a small sample of something. Find a way to test maybe a change in the way you operate in one small, tiny area first, maybe with one or two customers. What worked about it? What doesn't work? And then change that. So, But all of this means that you need to actually assess things. You need to have a system in place. So check on it, check in on it regularly to work out, is this working? Is it achieving what we need? So I apply that sort of process to my own preparations mentally and physically. So that's why I test myself on stuff because I want to know through that I had that effect. I love that. It's very clear and it's actually very useful for any business owner to go through the business themselves when mm-hmm. they in a crisis management, when the business encountered some difficulties or in personal dilemmas. Going through this is would be an absolutely useful. It appears to be a lot of things. It's a scientific approach to everyday reality can benefit us all. And it may seem quite scientific in the way that I'm approaching it, but it doesn't have to be as extreme it can be as simple as sitting down one afternoon there seems to be something that's not quite working with the business well let's let's try and understand what the customer's thinking what are we all thinking about this what's is there some regulatory changes what's been going on like really you can empathize that way like why are the customers doing that if you ask the question why about three to five times on a particular issue you'll finally start to get down to the real insight and that will then allow you to really define what's happening it's because they want to be home in time to spend time with their children or whatever it is, the reason why they're not particularly shopping at a particular time of the day or whatever it is. So then you can map out like, well, okay, now we understand what that issue is. How can we resource things better to ensure that is well met at the time that's going to work best for them to optimise our relationship with them or whatever and then come up with the idea, ideation like, all right, we now know this about the customer. What are some great gems? What are some fantastic ways that we might be able to no boundaries here. Let's just go with it. We could personally go visit them at work. We could have an online solution for them. We could do a million different things. All right, well, there's a few really good ones here. Let's test one or two of these with some of our, our most, most forgiving with us or whatever and, and see how that goes and get some good feedback on them. So that can be something that's done in, in an afternoon at your business. It's not a difficult process to put in place. It's just a case of dedicating the time and an open mind to it. Yes, and it's wonderful because I can always uh, talk to my clients and say, uh, Diane McGrath, taught me this. She's going to mass now. She can't take the class. So I'm in her replacement going to teach you how to alienate your problems and deal with them. That's my approach will be to the question from now on. Yeah, look, I love what you're saying. I mean, it kind of really resonates with me. Question everything is probably one of my favorite sayings. And I love what you said a little bit earlier about being a bit skeptical. I had a conversation just yesterday and somebody asked me, I was at a conference. Somebody asked me what the biggest thing was that I got out of the conference. 
And my response was that we were looking at some reports and things like that. My response was, you know, I can see some of the stuff that we're missing, some of the stuff that's not there. And the immediate response that I got to that was that, that I was being negative, but I wasn't being negative at all. I was just looking outside of, you know, what is being put in front of us. Mm -hmm. You were looking at positive, how to make it better. Exactly. And you were interpreted in a, you were interpreted within the relay of other person. Like I said to you, it was more yeah. self-reflection rather than what. Yeah. So I think that's so healthy. And the, the experiment that you're doing sounds interesting. How far are you into that experiment? my first week of this current experiment of my calorie consumption quite dramatically, which I'm finding a challenge. I've just come off eating um, extremely restricted diet in calories. And so I'm having to switch them completely to much higher plant-based, much lower fat, standard sort of protein, but much larger in volume in calories, which means a lot which is quite difficult for me because they're so large in volume as opposed to they're not very calorie dense plants which is a shame because so you have to eat a lot of them to get a lot of energy and I, I use the word calories in a way that it's actually designed a calorie is a measurement of energy a calorie is not something about my weight or my fat content or anything a calorie is a measurement of energy so it's much more efficient normally for me to get my energy from fat because I don't need to eat it to get as much energy what it's reminded me, and I was reflecting on this yesterday when I was journaling, was that same aspect of mindset of when you're in a particular behavior, no matter whether that behavior has been a good and positive behavior, you change, when you try something new, it's very difficult because your mindset is so used to following a particular pathway, and it does. Our brain connects, is just start a particular behavior, our brain starts almost developing, almost laying down the bitumen of the pathway from X to Y in our brain. Like, oh, this is what I do all the time. Oh, and it gets, and every time you do that same that road gets wider in the brain. It's really hard to drive in a different direction. The more you do that behavior, the more you're likely to drive on that road. So if you're trying to change your behavior, it's like down the side and not knowing where that goes. So it takes a, a long time to develop a new behavior. And to try and do that, the best way to do that is to plan and to notice where the areas are, like I find anyway, for me, notice where the areas are, that old route, the route that's got the big wide road. Where did I get on that road? Where do I get on it? And where are the points where I sometimes might have an option to take a different path? So when it comes to trying to change my behavior for food, do boring things like track my food and weigh my food and even plan meals in advance to make sure I know oh, yeah, I'll be getting the adequate amount of protein here or sufficient fats, dietary fats or whatever. So if I know what it looks like before I eat it, I can go out and eat it without having to worry about it. So but then, I, you know, once you sort of establish those sorts of patterns, I no longer have to start to track things in the same sort of capacity. But to start off with, it's like changing any behaviour. Once again, it's just all about that mindfulness stuff and self-aware. If you can be self-aware of what you're doing, you have to take that one foot, that one step at a time on that dirt track. Notice when you go bushwalking, there are some tracks that are really well-worn and then there are places that aren't walked at all. Now, our mind takes us to the paths that are well-worn because this is a journey that others have trod before and is safe and we know this. But if we decide to take the other way and explore what happens if I go over this ridge over here or around this, this end? There's no path there yet, but can I, I can always walk back. I think that's what people forget, and me as well. Sometimes I think it's, I forget that I can walk back if it doesn't work that way. I can learn the lesson. I think that's the key point here. You know, I fail constantly. I, I want my lesson to be a series of constant failures. If I don't fail, I can't learn um, in the same way. It's, it's hard to learn from success. You learn a lot more from failure. What did I learn from that? Like when I was sitting at breakfast this morning, I was I thought I'd planned out a good breakfast for myself, but it's like, ah, oh, damn, I didn't have enough protein there. How did, you know, when I was calculating it all, foods would give me a better protein to fat ratio. And then when I looked them up, it's like, oh, okay, well, next time I'll have a bit more smoked salmon and I won't have the bacon. So, you know, I learned from that. I sat down and went, all right, okay, you know, lesson learned, have an extra slice of smoked salmon instead, which is terribly appealing. <laughs> and another egg. And part of that <laughs> is that you actually continuously learning i think that's probably the biggest thing there 
Another example, you have a very specific uh, methodology around the coffee. You call it my coffee trick. And a lot of business owners consume coffee to keep themselves awake. And it's coming to the mm. price of the disruption to the sleep pattern and so on and so forth. I actually learned about you that you have petrol tank metaphor with this coffee. So do you want to tell us or our listeners about it? Yeah, so the my coffee strategy i'm quite particular about i'll drink a real real calf you know sometimes you go into a cafe and you have to ask the the brewster oh do you have decaf and they just look at you with disdain like what what are you talking about this is melbourne caffeine is a fascinating chemical and it's such a great compound we know that there's reductions in melanoma in people that drink more than so many cups of coffee a day this is not causative this is correlative which means that there's an association it doesn't mean that's the main reason has to be associations with that and there's a few other you know really important cognitive function for example is another one how many of us have a, a cup of coffee and then we feel right my brain's good now i'm fine now <laughs> our body which looks identical to the chemical compound but caffeine coffee what that means is and the challenge is that our body has these receptors for adenosine that coffee then goes into and why is that important and builds up during our day when we don't have just imagine we have no coffee which is a, a terrible day for many people but imagine we have no coffee our adenosine builds up in its receptors normally as the day progresses and then by about 9 30 at night it sort of starts to put into pressure as it goes closer as the evening comes from around 5 30 to 9 30 we get what's called sleep pressure that's when our body says oh it's time for me to start to go to sleep now and starts to release to sleep and so on those processes are connected so adenosine has to build up for us to get tired which is why you know we'll often have a coffee at night to, or you know, when we're studying to try and keep ourselves awake to stay focused when we drink coffee or have tea as well strong tea is the same chocolate as well has this compound in it too as caffeine these take the spots you know we find that we can't build up at sleep pressure so we you know it's harder to fall asleep at night when we have coffee but it doesn't mean we can't have a coffee or two in the morning. Coffee has a half-life that's about six to eight hours roughly, which means that the caffeine in it, about half of it is gone from our system in about six or eight hours' time. So you'd have the equivalent of like, well, you've still got an entire shot left in your system at around you know, mid-afternoon. And if you have a second coffee at that time of the day, you've just added to the tank. So you've added to your petrol tank, which wasn't empty. So as you can imagine, you know, it's now going to take another half-life for that to drop down to what's equivalent of a full tank. Popping up this tank. But if we don't allow it time to actually empty, then we're not going to allow those receptors to be able to be utilised efficiently for both the sleep pressure for adenosine to build up, but also for caffeine to actually be as effective for its other functions. And to give ourselves, it's a bit like, I sort of think about it like the batteries on our phones and so forth. You know how we're supposed to let the battery actually drain before we recharge it, not just keep topping it up all the time. So it allows everything to run much more efficiently if we let things drain for a little bit. And one of the other reasons I don't drink coffee every day, I don't drink coffee, like caffeine, on days when I'm lifting weights. It shows that caffeine actually inhibits growth hormone. And one of the main reasons I'm lifting weight is to grow my muscles, <laughs> to get stronger. So it's kind of counterproductive if, if I go have a big caffeine shot before weights for, you know, 45 minutes or whatever, and then have another big coffee afterwards. I've probably done damage to all the work that I've been trying to do to, to grow my muscles. I'll just stay the same, which is fine if I want to stay the same, but that's usually not what I'm trying to do. What fascinates me about you, everything has a scientific foundation the way you eat the way you sleep the way you do other obviously biological functions i won't talk about it in this podcast my thing now what i want to ask you because we need to come to the some conclusion i can talk to you forever and i know you're a very busy person and so terence probably has a lot of questions i just want to ask another very insecure question of mine what happens if you are not getting selected to go to mars What's your plan B? Our plan B. Plan B is, is to be the best human I can be on, the best earthling, and to continue the work. So my plan B, if I don't get selected to go to Mars, is to continue to do the best I can on this planet. Um, the research that I'm doing in food waste has been utilised already to help 
some countries to develop some some strategies to reduce their waste. And, and I've worked with the Australian government. I've chaired one of the advisory boards both government to help develop the national food waste strategy, which launched last year. So I'd continue to do things in a way that can improve life on this planet too. You know what really would improve life on this planet called also very narrow spot, Australia? We would have a very decisive and intelligent prime minister. Would you ever consider yourself as a candidate? Oh, <laughs> oh gosh, would I ever go for stand up for prime minister? I think that anyone who's decided to go into politics has probably started off with the best of intentions, but I think in many instances they get caught up in the machine of what it is. And so I think that sometimes people get lost in their journeys. Exactly. Therefore, you need somebody bionic of nature like yourself in order to change the system and make it a little bit more... I don't know, electorate friendly, because at the moment politics is big marketing campaign at our cost, but it would be nice to have a very, very different government at some point of time. I can hear the campaign now, hashtag DM for PM. <laughs> That would be great. I will vote for you. <laughs> will you vote for Diane, Terence? <laughs> well, it's an important vote. I've got four kids as well. I would love this. It would be really, really good campaign because you're so different. So what would be your ultimate advice for someone else who really wants to make an impact, not necessarily in exactly the same way as you are looking to make an impact? I guess what's a piece mm. of advice that you could give someone? Why not? I think it's one of my favourite questions to ask. Why not? We set so many boundaries on what we try and achieve in business, in life or whatever. We often, as we talked about earlier, about not being good enough and against what yardstick? You know, more forgiving of ourselves and find a way to try and challenge ourselves to use some of the following phrases a bit less often. This is a familiar phrase, I'm sure, myself. I shouldn't. I can't. I'm not. Those three phrases just create so many fences have to break down or feel that we're enclosed by i think that and this is something that i'm constantly looking at myself as well so i'm not just saying oh i've got this mapped out i'm perfect i'm far from perfect in this i have the same frailties and that as everybody else when i see in time recognizing through my self-reflection that i've been using those terms i stop myself and think why not or i should not or I am not, and then I ask, why not? It then reminds me that, you know, I actually really am good at this, or I can do this thing. I can come up with a million excuses, always. You can always come up with excuses, can't you? It's, uh, we're so good at excuses at keeping with the status quo. But I think if we can ask ourselves that question, why not? Yeah, yeah. that's so true. Look, I actually find now that I kind of look for those questions, not just from me, but from other people. And, you know, my response will will generally be kind of what you're saying, you know, why not? Or why do you say that? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. Diane, how can our listener connect with you? So for those who are interested in following some of my random experimentation, you'll find that mostly on Instagram. And my Instagram account is D-A McGrath. That's M-C-G-R-A-T-H or lowercase. And some of the things that are happening with Mars One on my Facebook account, which is at Diane McGrath Astronaut Candidate. And, and I also share all sorts of random things around some of the science that I, I, I listen to and, and read, all the stuff around caffeine and the like and sleep. And you'll find that on my Twitter account in particular, which is my Twitter handle is at light and portable. It's L-I-T-E-A-N-D-P-O-R-T-A-B-L. Website, which is dianemcgrath.com.au. Fantastic. All right. Yeah, well, thanks. This has been a very interesting conversation it's given me a lot of, to think about and uh, Nadia has taken plenty of notes I have and I just following you right now I'm clicking the button <laughs> because I read your blog and everything I just missed one piece in this puzzle is your Instagram <laughs> so unpadable account with me but yeah thanks a lot for joining us we really appreciate your time really you know appreciate you doing this and we'd love to have you on again at some stage 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks so much, Terence and Nadia, for inviting me on. I've, I've really loved sharing this and, and exploring some of these topics. I don't get the chance to examine some of this stuff in more detail to reflect on some of these things. Thank you. Diane, I am personally grateful to you for saying yes to the podcast. I have a lot of questions and obviously I will try to find answers following your blog so I don't annoy you. But it would be dream coming true to have you live in a studio one day if you ever find any capacity and please let us know. It would be great for social exposure from point of view business for our business people because what we will do, we will then trade everywhere because what businesses can learn from you is amazing. We always look for traditional ways of learning about business and everything, but I believe that any science should be put in good use already on practical level. And who is closer to practical level is businesses because they have agility to implement these methods already. There is no impediment for them in sense of testing, going through approval and everything. They're own masters of their own faith. Therefore, they can take what you give them and already to, I am going to change a few things about the way I operate. Cool. Yeah. What you look to change and, and how that goes and the testing you do on that and as you follow that design thinking process. I absolutely loved it. Thank you, Diane, very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.